Well, just as they dedicated a, a portion of the harvest, when they would take that harvest and turn it into flour and they made bread, God said, you're to take a portion of that bread and dedicate it to me. Why? Because it was a reminder that God had provided. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the 11th chapter of our study of the book of Romans, and as we pick up where we left off last time, Pastor Carl explains what Paul means by Israel as the first fruits, and that we as Gentiles have been grafted into the family of God. And if the first fruits were to be set apart as holy, so should the rest of them be as well. So there's an Israelite remnant, even in Paul's day. But as we will see next time, there's coming a day known as the Great Tribulation Period where there is going to be an Israelite recovery. And God is setting the stage even today for that coming day when Israel will come and acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Now that's the broad and immediate context. And God wants us to understand His plan for Israel, not just as it relates to Israel, but as we're going to see today, He's going to begin to apply to us as Gentiles, which is about 99.999% of us here today. If you're using your note-taking outline, there are three key words I want to give you today that really summarize this paragraph of Scripture, the word provoke, the word picture, and the word prohibition. Beginning now in verses 11 through 15, Paul gives us the Gentile provocation, the Gentile provocation. Look again now in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? The New English translation puts it, I asked them, they did not stumble into an irrevocable fall, did they? Still another English translation puts it, I asked then, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Have the Jews and their rejection of Jesus moved beyond all hope? Is their fall irretrievable? Is it incurable? And Paul's answer is simply no, may it never be. And as in the first paragraph, he's not content to leave it there. He gives a very detailed explanation. And so he explicitly says here in verse 11, but by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. By the way, this statement reflects the pattern of Paul's ministry in the Acts of the Apostles. If you remember, whenever he went to a place, if there was a synagogue or a place where Jewish people met, he would go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But there came a point in his ministry where there was such utter rejection by the Jewish people of Jesus as Lord, he began to go to the Gentiles exclusively. And so he's called the apostle to the Gentiles in the New Testament. Now follow verse 12. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Do you see what he's saying? If the Jews' rejection of Jesus brought greater blessing for the Gentiles, then how much more will their reception of Jesus bring great blessing to the whole world? If Israel's sin brought blessing, if God used her sin to bring greater blessing to the Gentiles, what is he going to do when they actually come to faith? He's going to bring great blessing. Let me see if I can illustrate. 
When our family moved from Texas to Buford, we couldn't find a, a house that would work for us with, with a lot of children. And so we decided, well, we'll just buy a house. And so we bought a portion of land and we began to build. And we knew that for six months, they said it would take to build our home, that we would need other quarters. I didn't really want to move all of our stuff into some rented facility and then pack it all up again and move it out again. I said, Audrey, we should just pray that we can find a furnished home. And God answered our prayer and we took all our stuff and went straight into storage. And the only thing we took with, with us into that rented home that was fully furnished was our suitcases with the clothes in it. And God provided. And it was quite a nice home. It was a rather wealthy couple. And they did not want to just rent their home to anyone, but being a pastor, they thought we were trustworthy and they rented it to us. They had been married over 50 years and they thought we'll go for one last hurrah and we'll tour the country in our motor home and we'll camp out in that thing. And, and we moved into their home and it had all the nice little creature comforts, things that we had never experienced as still a young family. Well, while they were gone, we enjoyed all those creature comforts. He had a wonderful library. Most homes don't have a dedicated room for a library, but they did. They had some of the nicest, comfortable chairs I'd ever sat in. First time I'd ever seen a programmable thermostat. Beautiful sound system. They had even a little lime tree in the backyard, and we would go out there and we'd pick the fresh limes when they were in season, and we enjoyed it. And so as I began to enjoy all those creature comforts, the comforts of a man's hard work for a lifetime, I became king. Let's call these people the Goldsteins. I became king as a Gentile in the Goldsteins' house. And uh, the Brogies, as Gentiles, were temporarily enjoying the Goldsteins' blessings and their riches. That's Paul's point here in verses 11 and 12. It was like these Gentiles, the Brogies, had moved into a beautiful Jewish home, the Goldsteins. The Gentiles were on the outside. They moved out of their home, and we moved into it. And we, like the Gentiles, inherited all their literature, and so did the Gentiles. The Scriptures were provided for them. The Jews, who were the keepers of God's Word, provided the oracles of God, as we studied in the third chapter, for the Gentiles. And all of the blessings of the Torah and the prophets were described there in the Old Testament Scripture. And so as it was if the Jews, the Goldsteins, were out in the wilderness, they were out there in, the, in their suitcases, so to speak, but the Gentiles, the Brogies, they were in the Goldsteins' house, and they were enjoying all the riches of the Goldsteins. And so Paul says here in verse 12 that their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. If that's what their sin brought, then what will their obedience bring? So follow verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow... I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Suppose the, the Goldsteins come back from their trip, and they did. They came back a little bit early. <laughs> but we had a lease, and our house wasn't finished. And so for the last two weeks, they had to stay in a hotel. But suppose they came back, and they peered in the windows, and they saw the Gentiles, the Brogies, enjoying all their blessings. There I am sitting in his 
Bocker Lounge that had a built-in massager and heater to it. It was magnificent. Enjoying all his literature, drinking out of her fine china, a cup of tea. And they look through the windows and he sees me messing with his remote control and his beautiful stereophonic system. And he says, I want in my house. I want to come back. I'm tired of staying out in the wilderness. I want to come back and enjoy my riches. That's what Paul is saying here in verses 13 and 15. He says, I magnify my ministry to you Gentiles. If somehow I might move them, that is you Jews, to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. When Audrey and I were at Duke University, I was the campus pastor for Campus Crusade for Christ for five years. It's a campus that's 25% Jewish. And we did a lot of Jewish evangelism and saw over the years a number, I say a number, there's about six Jewish people, men and women, who came and believed on Jesus as Lord. And one of those young guys was a guy named Mark Schwartz, who today is a missionary. And I met with Mark one day and I said, Mark, let me ask you, I'm just curious, what was the turning point for you? Have you been raised in a strict Jewish home? to come and believe on Jesus. He said, well, you know, you met with me and you went through all the apologetics and, you know, I couldn't argue against them that Jesus has to be Israel's Messiah. But he says, that's not what really got me. What got me was you and Audrey and your marriage. He said, you have such a good marriage. And he said, I relate that to your Christianity. And he said, I didn't see that kind of home growing up. And he said, I want what you have. And God used that to create in me a desire to find out more about Jesus. Likewise, Paul wants the Jews to observe the Gentiles, and he wants to provoke, he wants to move them to jealousy. Now, you might read verse 14 here and think, well, in Paul provoking the Jews to jealousy, is he not provoking them to sin since jealousy is sin? Well, while it is true that the word translated here, jealousy, is the same word used in Galatians 5 where he enumerates the deeds of the flesh, sensuality, immorality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, carousing, jealousy, that jealousy is a deed or a work of the flesh, it is equally important to know that not all jealousy is sin. As a new Christian, sometimes these things would challenge me and I would get a little confused. I'd read something as in the Decalogue, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And I would read statements like that, that God is a jealous God. And yet I would read statements that love is not jealous. In 1 Corinthians 13, and that jealousy is a work of the flesh. Well, understand jealousy, much like anger, can have a righteous and an unrighteous expression to it. Now, whether your jealousy is right or wrong depends whether or not your rivals have a right to be there. For example, if you're married, you have committed yourself to one person until death or Christ's return severs the relationship. It's an exclusive relationship. And so if some third party comes along and tries to enter in, then you have a right to be jealous because it is an exclusive relationship. And so in the Old Testament, God describes his relationship to Israel in marriage covenant terms. And in the New Testament, God does the same with the church. 
In fact, when God is jealous, he has a right to be jealous because God is God and God has an exclusive right to be worshiped through his son, Jesus Christ. And when you really think about jealousy, jealousy is God's love in action. God refuses to share your heart with any kind of idol. And idolatry in the Bible is far beyond worshiping at some statue or piece of glass or stone, though over a third of the world still expresses that form of idolatry. Greed is idolatry. Sexual immorality is idolatry. It's anything you put above God. And God has an exclusive right to our worship, and so he can be a jealous God, just like not all anger is sin. The Bible says, be angry, but sin not. Now, most people in counseling will tell me, well, my anger is a righteous anger. And most of the time I'll say, I don't think so. But you can't have a righteous anger, just like you can't have a righteous jealousy. And God, as a righteous God, when he is a jealous God, when he's jealous for us, it's not that, you know, he needs us. It's not like God is trying to be selfish. It's not that he is uh, jealous of us. He's jealous for us. He knows that our moral well-being, he knows that our best is found in a relationship with him through Christ. And so Paul is trying to rightly provoke the Jewish people through this new covenant relationship, and some of them responded. They would see these hardcore Gentile idolaters totally transformed, experiencing a depth of joy in the Lord that they never knew. And God used that changed life to bring some of them to faith in Jesus. Now, let's bring verses 12 and 15 together. I want you to see something. Verse 12 says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now look at verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? There is going to be a time, we'll study it next time, of super blessing for the world. There's coming a time when the nations of the world are going to oppose Israel. Yesterday, in cities all across the world, people were demonstrating against Israel. Listen, you haven't seen anything yet. They're just planting seeds for the coming demonstration when all the nations of the world, including America, will come against Israel in that place called the Valley of Jezreel, Armageddon, the mountain of Geddon. And so God is saying, listen, but when they respond, Whoa, look out, because God is going to use their response to bring millions of Gentiles, those who are saved during the tribulation, those who have never heard the gospel before, in power and clarity will be like the sands of the seashore because of these Jewish evangelists of that coming day. He said it's going to be like life from the dead. I saw that piece uh, a couple months ago on the internet. Some of you saw it about that man who died in his home, and the coroner came and declared him dead, and they put him in the body bag and carried him there to the funeral home. And after he'd been in the funeral home about an hour, he, he started kicking and yelling. The guy in the funeral home had about a heart attack. The guy was working there that day. He was alive. And they called up his home, and they said, your father, the coroner was, he, he, he's, he's alive. And the whole family started shouting. It was like life from the dead. They began to shout with joy. 
There's going to be great blessing when the Jews come to faith. It's going to be like life from the dead. So the first key word is the word provoke. The Apostle Paul wants to use the Gentile believers to provoke the Jews to jealousy. But beyond the Gentile provocation, I want you to see the word pictures. He uses two word pictures or two metaphors. One comes from the ceremonial religious life. The other comes from the agricultural farming life of Israel. Two word pictures that illustrate the truth of verse 15 to show us that when the Jews finally do come home in faith, it's going to be great blessing for the whole world. The first comes from the realm of baking. The second comes from the realm of gardening. Let's look at the first one here in the first part of verse 16. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. What on earth is he talking about? Well, this illustration of this lump in the dough goes back to the Old Testament when the Jews were instructed by God to perform something with their dough. Some of you know some of the Old Testament feasts like the Feast of First Fruits. And each of the Israel's feasts illustrates in some way the first or second coming of Christ or both. If you remember when the first fruits would come in, when a farmer locally has his first fruits, that usually comes in three to four weeks before the big harvest comes. And they'll go out and they'll pick the first fruits. Well, the Jews would do the same and they would bring a, a sheave to the priest and they would take some of that first fruit, that wheat, and they'd grind it up and they would bring a handful of, uh, uh, of grain. And they would dedicate it to the Lord. And of course, it was a picture Christ, our first fruits, Paul said, is risen from the dead. He's the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. And right after him, right after his resurrection, a handful of Old Testament saints, Matthew records, came back out of the grave. God resurrected them. It was a fulfillment of first fruits. And it was a fulfillment of what is yet to come, the great harvest, the great resurrection of God's people when they will be raised from the dead. Well, just as they dedicated a, a portion of the harvest, when they would take that harvest and turn it into flour and they made bread, God said, you're to take a portion of that bread and dedicate it to me. Why? Because it was a reminder that God had provided. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread. We don't see God in America anymore as the provider. We say, well, the grocery store provided or I provided but we don't really see God as the provider anymore. You just let God turn the faucet off a little bit longer. You let California and the Midwest and other states begin to have no rain, and we'll see who the provider is. You know, they had that awful drought in Georgia where my son lives, and they were getting ready some years back when they weren't even going to be able to wash their cars anymore. Oh, well, the governor of Georgia had a great idea. He was, he was a born-again Christian at the time. I don't know if he's still in office, but he said, uh, I think we ought to have a day of prayer. People thought he was out of his mind. Pray? He said, yeah, look, if you want to pray to your rain God, you can, but I'm praying to the one true God. And on the state capitol on the steps, he called over a thousand people and hundreds of pastors, and they prayed for rain. And now their lakes are overflowing beyond the brim. Maybe California would be smart to do that. Maybe we would be smart. But sometimes God uses natural disasters and he turns the faucet off to let us know who the real provider is. Put out next to verse 16, would you? Numbers 15, 17 to 21. Numbers 15, 17 to 21. Write that and listen as I read it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak 
to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering. As the offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generation. So the first piece of dough that was cooked was given to the Lord as an offering, as a sample that of all that would be baked, it came from the hand and from the provider, God himself. Now, that's not an idea that's totally foreign, even under the new covenant. Because even under the new covenant, God asks his people to tithe. Some say, well, that's relegated to the Old Testament. That's not true. For 1,900 years, God's people practiced tithing. That's new in theology. No, Abraham, ever before the law was given, he commenced tithing. Jacob continued it. Moses commanded it. Jesus commended it as well. We should never, ever cancel it. It still applies. And so when we give a tenth of what God has placed in our hand, what are we doing? We're saying, it's all yours, Lord. It's not mine. It's all yours. It's not a, even a 10, 90% relationship. Well, 10% is God's and 90% is mine. No, it's all God's. That's what you're affirming. And someday we'll give an account for all 100%. And it's always amazing to me that when a Christian begins to tithe, how he spends the other 90% differently because he realizes it's the Lord and that God is to have access to it all if he so chooses. But what I'm wanting you to see is that the Apostle Paul's bread illustration is much like tithing in first fruits. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. As one part is set apart for God's purpose, then the whole is set apart for God's purpose. Now remember, Paul is relating this to the Jewish people, to the Hebrew nation. If the first piece is set aside for God, so is the whole. If the first piece, represented by the founders, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were holy, it's a word that means is set apart. If the first piece, represented by the patriarchs, is holy, then the same is true of the whole nation. The whole nation is set apart for God. And so the second picture now falls on the heels of the first. Notice the second picture. It doesn't come from the religious realm of Israel, but from the agricultural realm. It's not a baking illustration, but a gardening illustration. Look, if the root is holy, the branches are too. If the root was set apart for God's purpose, then so are the branches. Because all that come out of the root Abraham are the branches, the Jewish people. Now that brings us to the third key word, the word prohibition. Beyond the Gentile provocation and these word pictures, I want you to think about the apostolic prohibition. Paul now goes on to warn us. He tells us there's something we as Gentiles must do. And as Gentiles this morning, we would be very wise to heed his warning. And so beginning now in verse 17, the apostle Paul gives us an allegory. You know what an allegory is? It's a symbolic illustration that has deeper meaning behind it. And so there's some famous allegories in history like Pilgrim's Progress or Moby Dick or Animal Farm. And God gives Paul this allegory based on an olive tree because in the Old Testament, 
one of the emblems that God used to describe Israel was that of an olive tree. In fact, it's called in the Scripture the land of olives. And when you go to Israel, one of the things that captivates your attention is there's olive trees everywhere. They, they grow like our state weed, the palmetto tree, you know? And so Jeremiah can say, the Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. So we're not surprised that God would liken Israel to an olive tree. But if some of the branches were broken off, now stop right there. Let's ask, who are the branches? It refers to the Jewish people who come out of the root. Those people who are physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the Jewish people who came out of the root, if they are the source and these branches that come out of the root are broken off, just like there's a relation between the first lump of dough and the whole thing that follows, please notice, if some of the branches were broken off, and I have that word some circled in my Bible, it doesn't say all the branches. Remember, we've been studying here that God has always had his remnant. There's always been a remnant of believing Jews, but those branches who have rejected Jesus, if they are broken off, now notice what verse 17 says, this is the meat of the word, pay attention, but if some of the branches were broken off in you, now he's talking about Gentiles who are believers, that's virtually all of us sitting here, if some of the branches were broken off in you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, that is the remnant of Jewish Christians, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now comes the prohibition, verse 18. Therefore, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. That's the warning to us as Gentiles. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Don't be boastful. Don't you as born-again Gentiles, now that you are on top, now that you are enjoying the blessings of Israel, don't you be boastful. Because remember, you were grafted in. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear." God is reminding us that we are not superior to them either racially or by the fact that they are out and we are in. We are only in because of our faith in the Lord Jesus and they are out because of their unbelief. And so he warns us again in verse 21, look at the text, for if God did not spare the natural branches, that is the Jews, he will not spare you either, that is Gentiles. Listen to what he says in verse 22, behold then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, unbelieving Jews, severity. But to you, that is Gentiles who believe in Jesus, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now, please understand, verse 22 is not teaching you can lose your salvation. Paul, more clearly in Romans and more emphatically and in more detail than any other epistle in the, all of the New Testament, describes the eternal security of the believer, that once we are saved, we are saved forever. Don't miss the point of this illustration. Paul is not discussing the people who are Jewish individually, but those who are collectively Jews in the same way he's describing us as Gentiles collectively. And there's a warning here to Gentile believers 
believers who collectively believe in the Lord Jesus that we don't want to miss. What a blessing that we get to be partakers of the blessings of God and that we get to be grafted into His kingdom. To listen again to today's message, God's Olive Tree, download the Search the Scriptures app available in the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store. There you can listen to the entire Romans series. You can also listen online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or give us a call at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM55 available on CD or DVD. Tomorrow, we'll finish our look at God's olive tree. Join us then as we search the scriptures.